around, but we're going to get right to it. So today I have the pleasure of introducing Richard Wolf, an economist, the founder of Democracy at Work and the podcast Economic Update. He's currently a professor at the New School. He is a profound Marxist economist, and I've been following his work for a long time. Hi, Richard. How are you doing today? Pretty well, Danny. Thank you. Very nice introduction. I'm much obliged. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out today to talk about something that I think is on the minds of many working people, working class people across this country, across the planet, and that is this uh, a breakneck inflation that's been happening. Workers across this country and around the world are really suffering from the rise in these prices. It's been going on now for uh, what seems like uh, months now and with no end in sight. And yesterday, uh, I was doing a stream on my own and I found a Business Insider article where the uh, purported journalist was speaking to Wall Street investors and Perhaps this is also going around in other mainstream publications. They were suggesting, these Wall Street investors, that the only way to fix inflation at this moment, what they call a wage price spiral, is to have the Federal Reserve institute an economic crisis, act, create a recession. I want to get your reaction to that. And if you could just help us understand, one, what's causing this, two, uh, also, if you could Talk about the mechanics of capitalism here, because this is not what Business Insider really likes to do, even if they tell you what Wall Street investors are thinking in their head. They're not telling us how capitalism actually works. So if you would oblige us. Absolutely. And, and thank you for the opportunity. I, I do appreciate it. Let me start out by giving everyone a bit of a warning. Um, I've been an economics professor all my life. That's quite a few years now. And so I've been around and I will tell you this, that the level of disconnect between what uh, Wall Street Journal or uh, other major newspapers are saying, what our political leaders are saying and what the actual reality is, I've never seen it as badly disconnected or misconnected as is going on now. And let me give you a couple of examples. The Biden administration uh, and many others like to say over and over again uh, that the inflation is not just an American problem, you know, it's all over the world. Uh, that's false. Uh, let me give you an example. The United States currently legally, officially admits to a rate of inflation across the board of about eight and a half between eight and a half and nine percent. And you do get numbers like that in Britain uh, and so forth. But let me make clear to you, I'm gonna pick two other countries that everybody's heard of. One is called Japan and one is called the People's Republic of China. They currently have inflation rates of 1%, not 8%, not 9%, not half of that, not a quarter of that, nothing by comparison. So the notion that we are all together in this may be comforting to the people who are talking out of their mouths, but it isn't true and it hasn't been true and it ought to be faced up to that. It's a little bit like COVID where we have the United States with a million people dead, the People's Republic of China, a country four times larger than the United States, with 20,000 people dead. That's not close. That has to be confronted. That's a statistic of staggering proportions. And I could have picked other countries too, not just China, and made the same point. So that's the first thing. Now the second thing that you point to, quite right. Everybody seems agreed, Republicans and Democrats, Biden, Trump, and all the others, that the inflation is bad and that the way to stop it or bring it down is to raise interest rates. And the idea is simple. If you raise interest rates, you make it more expensive for people to borrow. 
we won't borrow to buy a car quite so easily because the monthly payments will go up if interest rates do. Ditto for buying a house or an apartment. Ditto for using credit cards. You're all going to learn, if you haven't already, that at the end of the month with a higher um, credit card interest rate, which, by the way, is currently averaging 20% per year, you're going to pay more to carry your credit over time. So it hurts borrowers, people who are already in debt, people who are facing more debts. That's what it does. And the hope is, here we go now, the hope is that there'll be so many fewer car buyers, so many fewer home buyers, so many fewer credit card uses that companies will be less likely to raise their prices because they're already having trouble holding on to their customer. And so we'll bring the inflation down, the theory goes, by really whacking the population with an inflation. And before I go on, let me drive home. We've just put the American people through an experience that has no precedent in American history. The years 2020 and 2021, we had the worst public health disaster in our country's history, happening at a time when we had the second worst economic crash in our country's history, both at the same time. We've never had that before. People really suffered. They, a million people died. Many millions got very ill. Some of them will have symptoms. We don't even know how long they'll last. You know, on and on and on. To, to put a population through that is bad. But to follow it up with an inflation, I mean, that's unspeakable. The only thing worse than that would be to follow up the inflation by a recession, which is precisely what raising all these interest rates risks having happened. And now here comes another disconnect. The Republicans and the Democrats are alike in behaving and talking and giving speeches as if this were the only way to deal with an inflation. That's straight out wrong. It's so wrong that I'm now going to give you two quick examples from American history. By that, I mean the history of the U.S. I know we shouldn't say America. There's much more to America than the U.S., but I'll take them from U.S. history. I'll take one from a Republican conservative president and one from a progressive Democrat. They all had to handle inflations, too. Let's see how they did it real quick. August 15th, 1971, then President Richard Nixon, conservative Republican. He goes on the radio and the TV and he says, as of tomorrow morning, my fellow Americans, if you're a business and you raise prices, we will arrest you and throw you in jail. So my advice is don't do it. If you're a worker or a union, if you push wages up, we will arrest you and throw you in the clink, too. In other words, he declared what came to be known as a price wage freeze. By the way, there's a whole literature. I could get you books uh, about wage price freezes. You know why? Because countries around the world, not just the United States, have used them. And guess what? They work. Do they have problems associated with them? Of course, all these kinds of policies do. Raising interest rates certainly does. But that's not relevant. In the nine months that came after August 15th, 1971, we stopped the inflation on a dime. There was no inflation. So don't let anyone tell you raising interest rates is the only thing we can do. That's just wrong. Mr. Nixon, a conservative, did it. Let me give you the second example. It's early in the 1940s. The United States has entered World War II and is now a key player in a war against Germany, Italy, and Japan, the major other side of that war. And 
economic advisors come to the then progressive Democratic president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and they say to him, look, President Roosevelt, we got a big problem with the economists. We got to tell you about it. We are shifting resources from producing consumer goods to producing munitions for war. We have to because we can't risk losing the war. Okay, so we are going to move railroad cars and factories and land and, and roadways and trucking fleets to be used for munitions, making them and getting them overseas and all the rest. And that means the supply, here we go now, the supply of consumer goods is going to be shrunken and fast. This is a matter of a few months. You got to act, Mr. President, because within a few months, uh, things are going to dry up in the supermarket shelf or in the department store shelf. And you know what happens then, Mr. President? They said to him, "They here's what happened. Rich people will come in. They'll see, like everybody else does, that the shelves getting empty. And they'll go to the manager and they'll say, look, I'll give you twice whatever the price of that thing is because I want to make sure I get it. In other words, we'll bid up the prices as the wealthy act in the market the way markets are set up as an institution. People don't like to hear it because they want to deal with markets as though they deserve religious support. But markets are a way of allocating scarce items to the richest amongst us violating every ethical norm of every religion I've ever, ever heard of, which would never do that. And the advisors to Roosevelt said to him, if you don't step in, you're going to see rich people go to the store, bid up the price of milk, take it home and feed it to their cat, while the family with six little kids can't get the milk they need to grow up. And you know what you're going to have? A bitter, angry society, which is the worst possible way to go into a war. You need your people unified. You need your people supporting each other. You need your people feeling solidarity so that they can get behind the war effort and all of that. So you allow markets to work. You allow this inflation to happen. You will risk losing the war. Roosevelt didn't need any more smart guy. He said to them, okay, that's it. What do I do? And their answer was, first thing, get rid of the market. We can't have a market. We can't let rich people get what's scarce. This is self-destructive of a society. So here's what they did. They printed up what were called ration books or ration books. Inside each book, there were little ration stamps. And you tore off the stamp. And each stamp gave you, for example an entitlement for a pound of sugar or a gallon of gas for your car or whatever it was, lots of things. And the way the law worked was if you went to the store and all you had was money, the storekeeper could not give you the stuff. You could only buy it if you had a ration card, a ration stamp entitling you to buy it. And the government handed out ration stamps and you know how they did it? They gave people what they thought, oh boy, here it comes, they needed. If you had a family with a lot of children, you got a lot of milk stamps. If you had a family with no children, you got fewer milk stamps. If you were rural and had a truck, you got more stamps for gas than if you were urban and could rely on mass public transportation. Etc. logical, intelligent ways of dealing with this problem. And guess what? We didn't have an inflation in the 1940s. So anyone, again, who tells you the only thing we can do about this is to raise interest rates, you're listening to somebody who's either ignorant or is not your friend and telling you stuff that is noisy nonsense. It never was and it isn't now. We ought to be having, we're not, but we ought to be having in our society a debate about raising interest rates, about rationing, about wage price freezes, 
and there are other mechanisms that have been used. And we want to explain to the American people, here's uh, the, the benefits and costs of each of these. Here's the strength and weakness. And then let's have, can we dare say it, a democratic decision about how we, we're not doing that. We are taking care of business. And, and let me let me end this by making clear why it's, we're taking care of business. And here, this is the simplest economics there is. And, and people already know it, but they got to put it together a little bit better than they have. And they're not getting any help from mainstream media, which is the politest way I can say that. Okay. Who sets prices? You know, inflation is when prices rise. So the first logical question that a five-year-old would ask is, oh, okay, I understand. Uh, inflation, the prices go up. Who determines prices? Well, let me answer the question. Employers. All of us who have been employees all of our life probably noticed that no employer ever asked us to participate in the process of deciding how much to charge for whatever it is we help to produce. That's not our job. It's not in the job description of the employee. The employers keep that powerful right, that powerful function to themselves. Well, what percentage of our population are employers? Not even 1% which means that an inflation is something 1% of the people do and the other 99% live with. That's the way we do it. Doesn't have to be that way. We could have a democratic procedure to set prices. I would believe in it because I take democracy seriously. We don't have that in our society because if truth be told, we don't. So we allow a tiny minute. That's why we have an inflation. A tiny minority raised the prices. Government doesn't do that. Labor unions don't do that. Corporations raise the prices of goods. And now the final point. Why do corporate, why do the employers raise the prices? And the answer is what you learn if you're an employer and you go to a place called a business school. I have taught in business schools. You teach young people in a business school that they are driven by profit maximization. When you ask a question, do I expand my business? Do I hire more people? Do I buy a fleet of trucks? Do I move production from here to Mexico? Whatever. The answer is supposed to be, well, how will doing that affect your bottom line, i.e. your profits? If it'll be good for profits, probably should do it. If it's bad for profits, you probably should say no. And that's developed. Okay, so here we go. If businesses across the board raised their prices over the last 12 months, which we know they did, and the, then the answer is they did it, ready? Because it was good for their profits to do that. And of course, being Americans, they don't want to take responsibility for what they just did to make more profits. So like all good employers, they like to have scapegoats, someone else to blame. So I, I didn't raise the price for me. Oh, no. I had to, you see. Well, why did you have to? Well, um, let me see. Um, uh, Ukraine. Huh? Ukraine got nothing to do with it. Here's, here's even more magical thinking. Supply chain disruptions. Oh, my God. <laughs> For this, you don't have to pardon me. You know, at some point, you, you, you stop taking this nonsense seriously and you start laughing. I won't be disrespectful of your audience and start laughing. But let me just remind everyone. Every business ever developed has a supply chain because a business takes inputs and transforms them into outputs. So, uh, for example, you buy lumber and you transform it into a chair or you buy cotton and you make it into a shirt. So cotton is the input and lumber is the input and you got to get it from where it's made to your workplace so you can make your production. 
That's called the supply chain of your image. And you don't care whether it comes six miles away or 6,000 miles away. You just got to make sure it's there in the right time, in the right quantity, in the right quality, the right price. And you know what? Every medium to large business has in it something called the purchasing department. And the job of the purchasing manager is, here we go, to manage the supply chain. To have inventory in case it gets disrupted. To have a plan B if plan A doesn't work. A fallback supplier if your major supplier can't deliver on. The notion that suddenly all of the purchasing managers couldn't do their job. It's so lousy nonsense that the only really interesting thing is where, where? Did the people who run this society find enough media folks to repeat this noise as if it were the fountain of wisdom? It isn't. The last two years were difficult for most American capitalists. They wanted to make up the profits they didn't get in 2020 and 2021. And the fastest, easiest way to boost, recompensate themselves recoup the profits they didn't get was by jacking up the prices right now. And that's why they did it. And that's why we have it. And if we don't go after them, identifying who raised the price, why they raised them and deal with that, then we are going to do all these other things. We are living, by the way, in an economic system that is now going, going nuts. It couldn't handle the COVID. It couldn't handle the crash. It wasn't ready for either of them. Now it can't handle the uh, inflation. And now we're going to have a recession. Come on. How many of these crazy moves do you begin to need to see before you recognize this is a system that doesn't work? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, (laughs) you said so much there and there's so much I would like to follow up on. What it feels like, though, and, and, and you, what you said that the capitalists, the employers, they are looking to recoup their profits. I feel like when I've said that, you get this rebuke, even among people who tend to think of themselves as understanding economics and understanding even just the inequality, the injustice of the capitalist system. There's this rebuke because there are all these factors that we've been told, and I think part of this is just the propaganda. I mean, literally propaganda. The mainstream media yeah. has so many reasons, right? We've heard so many things from China's COVID-19 response as being responsible. We've heard Ukraine as being responsible, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. We've heard so many reasons for why this is happening, but none of them have been, well, capitalists want to make more money when there's opportunities to do so. And now I want to ask you about the crisis, right? The crisis that will be generated if investors in Wall Street get what they want. In 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was an economic crisis. There was a recession. And the bank, the banks, the Wall Street investors, they all got bailed out. They, they, They received a huge upward transfer of wealth and money. Is that what they're calculating upon now? Is that what, why they're pushing this particular policy? Because it seems like what you're suggesting is if there was government intervention, if there was some kind of intervention into the economy to stabilize things, it could be stabilized quite easily. But that's not happening. Why would Wall Street investors, why would these robber barons, so to speak, why would they want to tank the economy? Because that doesn't sound great, but they're vocalizing it. They're literally vocalizing it to to the public. That's because they have learned over time that things like an inflation, if they are allowed to go on, can cripple an economy. They wish they didn't have to intervene. They don't like to have the government step in. But they're doing it because the alternative is worse. Look, that's the way it was in the 1930s. The only reason we had the New Deal and I don't mean to take away from Franklin Roosevelt or from the CIO, the labor movement, or the socialist and communist parties at that time who were strong in the United States 
and who pushed hard for the New Deal. I don't want to take away what they did. We wouldn't have had it without them. But they got the approval, otherwise we couldn't have had it, of the capitalists, the leading ones in this country. And remember, Franklin Roosevelt, the president, comes from that part of it. He is part of the employer class. He was then. His family had other presidents earlier before him. So he was absolutely of that. But that community supported it because they were fearful that if they didn't do this thing they didn't like, they would have something happen to them that they would not like even more. And I'll tell you what it was then, and I'll tell you what it is now. Then it was revolution. Remember, 1929 is only 12 years after 1917 when you had the Russian Revolution and for the first time a socialist government and society and capitalists everywhere were afraid that that could come to their doorstep. And when the stock market and the economies of the capitalist West collapsed, all of them, in 1929, those simple 12 years later, that's what they were afraid of. And they were told by the AFL-CIO, in those days it was just the CIO, and they were told by the people in the streets, you better do something to fix this capitalism or else you're going to see a revolution here. And that's what frightened them. And so they went along with Roosevelt's creating uh, social security, unemployment compensation, a vast program of government hired jobs, the first minimum wage we ever had as a nation. All of those things that capitalists have always fought before and since were given almost easily at that time because so many capitalists were afraid of worse. Well, what is it today? Same thing. But what's the worst now? I'll give you some examples. This inflation coming after these terrible two years is really agitating the American working class. For the moment, their agitation is moving them to the political right, to Trump and all of that. White supremacy, uh, abortion struggles that are in the news, obviously, these days, and so on. And so as far as long as that lasts, then the people at the top don't mind sticking it to the working class. And remember, just to understand, prices are going up 8.5% a year. Wages are going up half of that, which means every worker is falling behind. So they're worried in case the anger of the mass of people is being stoked, that worries them a little. If it could go to the left, then they'd worry a lot. Yeah. Oh, if Bernie or AOC or any of those kinds of folks, let alone those that are further to the left, if that begins to be where the anger goes, then they've got to stop that inflation right away. And they don't care what the government needs. To, all those views about the appropriate government, that's all gone. Save us becomes the only issue. And let me tell you why they are worried now more than ever. Two weeks ago, there was a, uh, an election in France. Most Americans don't know and don't care. Big mistake. The French left is fractured, broken into lots of little, like the American left. But they did something remarkable under their current leader, whose name should be known in America, so I'll mention it. Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He unified the whole right, the left wing. He got them all together. And to create one party for these elections they had a couple of weekends ago. Includes the French Communist Party, the French Socialist Party, the French Green Party, and a bunch of others. They got a third of the vote in France two weeks ago. And Mr. Mélenchon is much to the left of Bernie Sanders. So, whoa. Now... Everyone in France, I mean, I read French. My father was born in France. I, mean, I'm, I, I pay attention to the country. Um, the whole capitalist class in France is completely, uh, they don't know what to do. 
and the left in France euphoric. They discovered, by the way, there is a right wing in France, a woman named Marine Le Pen, all right? In, in the elections two Sundays ago, the left wing Mélenchon got 31.6% of the vote. She, the right winger, she got 17%. American newspapers, she grew so much. That wasn't the important result. The important result is that the unified left got almost twice the vote she did. And that's the reality of French politics. Whoa, everything is changing in France right now as we speak. The right wing doesn't believe in the war in Iraq and the left wing doesn't either. The sitting president, he got 38% of the vote. So the overwhelming majority, two thirds of, of the people who went to vote don't want the president they elected two weeks ago. So you have to understand everything is very fluid. So more and more people are saying, we've got to stop this inflation, even if it throws five to 10 million people out of work, which it will yeah. uh, equally. Now, if you're the thinker, if you and I are analysts of this situation, then here's the real question, which no media dares to write, that in Wall Street and in the corridors of power, all that's being asked is, which is more dangerous for the survival of capitalism? Letting the inflation go or causing a recession as the way to solve the inflation? That's the real question. And that's going to be decided partly by the elections that come here in November, partly by whatever happens between now uh, and then, and partly what the inflation itself does. Remember, if there's an inflation here, it means that the goods anybody else in the world buys from America become more expensive. That's what an inflation is, which means our exports will be hurt. People everywhere will be looking for the less inflated alternative. And since I told you that Japan and China, among other countries, have no inflation, this is great for them. More and more of the world will buy Chinese goods that aren't going up instead of a, all of that is shaking up. But you know, we're living in an economic system that is in very deep doo-doo. That's why we have the problems we do and we have solutions that strike a lot of people as possibly worse than the problem they're designed to solve. That's not because the politician is stupid. It's because the problems have accumulated to the point where nobody knows what to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a good time to segue to geopolitics. Before I do that, I, I would like to remind people to make sure that they're liking this stream and, and sharing it helping us uh, spread this message around, helping sustain this work, patreon.com slash Danny Haifang. But I want to get into now, I think this is a good segue because you brought up France and you brought up China and Japan and, and kind of the political situation around the world. You know, what I noticed about the United States, because the United States is in the deepest of doo-doo, it seems like, but I mean, Europe is kind of just uh, tagging right along and and, yes, and when it comes when it comes to the russia situation it seems like europe the eu is willing to do uh many times more damage uh than even the united states is willing to do in relation to this conflict the russia ukraine conflict but i want to ask you know what what is the link here because the United States right now you know the G7 type of NATO summits about to happen G7 uh, met their focus is overwhelmingly on escalating the conflict in Ukraine, uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and escalating with China. There's there's a hyper-intensive focus led by the United States. But it would seem that this is kind of contradictory to everything that you've been saying about how do we address this inflation crisis? How do we do something other than putting the uh, economy, the, cap the world capitalist economy in the tank into a recession. What is the link here? Because it seems like the more dire the economic situation becomes for the U.S. and its and its partners, its junior partners, the more aggressive they become in regards to Russia and to China. 
what's the link here? Why, why is that occurring at the same time, in your opinion? Well, you know, this is the kind of conversation a proper media would have. Very good question. Right one to ask. Logical. And I'm going to give you the answer. But before I do, I want to really talk about that is wonderful that you're doing this, but it is terribly sad at how rare people it is to find people thinking clearly about it. All right, let, let me start with the, the European end of your story. Europe is in a very difficult place. It is caught as a part of the world whose empires have all disappeared, the British, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, the French, a little bit the Germans for the short time but they had one, etc. So they're coming down from their dominant role in the history of the world from the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Been very hard for them, number one. Number two, they've been outflanked, particularly in the last half century, by the growth to dominance of the United States on the one hand, and now in the last three decades, the growth of the People's Republic of China on the other. And there's really no place for them. They can't compete with the United States for all kinds of historical reasons, and they can't with the Chinese because it basically nobody can. The Chinese have figured out something that the world is going to have to slowly learn, doesn't want to learn, but that this mixture that Xi Jinping and the others have figured out, the mixture between private capitalist enterprises, which there are many, many of in China, and state enterprises owned and operated by the government. This is not what the Soviet Union did. This is not Scandinavia. It is a kind of socialism, but it has large admixtures of capitalism. And managing all of this to be able to show the economic growth that they have experienced in the last 40 years means that the Europeans have been completely outflanked. And that means they don't know quite what to do. Part of them, and this was very strong for a while, part of them began to say, maybe we better make a deal with China. Maybe we better understand that the American economy is over and the Chinese economy is in the ascendant. Most people around the world see that, even Americans, um, until the Europeans were beginning. But that frightened the Americans. They needed something to prevent the Europeans from following the logic and if not siding with China necessarily, but cutting lots of deals, which the Chinese were eager to do. Um, you know, uh, the biggest port in Greece is owned by Chinese interests. The German uh, manufacturing uh, economy, the strongest in Europe, is completely wrapped up with the Chinese economy, dependent on them, etc., etc. The United States needed to make sure that the Europeans didn't keep going where the logic of capitalism's development said they ought to go. And so they needed things to happen, here we go now, that might make it at least harder, that might harder for the Europeans to go towards the Chinese. And the, the Ukraine situation provided the Americans with an opportunity they saw, and they were determined to do it. They have been pushing uh, NATO further east, whether you're talking Poland in the north, or the Czech Republic in the middle, or Romania and Bulgaria in the south, uh, this Ukraine is only the latest step, um, Finland, Sweden, and so on. They're trying to mobilize the right wing, center right of Europe to be the stalwart ally of the United States in a confrontation economically, politically, culturally with China. And they understood that Russia is allied with China their chance to separate Russia, which might have happened after 18, uh, 1989, 
They lost. They missed that. That that by the way, they could have had that. That that, that was. You know, put that aside. That that's a failure of American foreign policy. So Ukraine is perfect. Ukraine, you can mobilize everybody to the right of the center, center right in Europe will get excited about that. Why? Because it distracts the people of those countries from the economic problems they have and that Europe cannot solve. All the high tech in the world, I mean, with a few exceptions, but high tech is either American or it's Chinese. The rest of it doesn't count. You know, the production of that's going on, the growth, the expansion, it's all Russia, it's all China and the United States, if there's any in the United States. But there is, I mean, who here, the, you know, the Europeans can't, and partly because they can't get together. If they all got together, then they'd be a bigger economic unit than the United States or China. But they don't. They continue in their crazy failure to break out of medieval Europe. They can't do it. So this war is a way solves two problems. It helps the United States make an alliance, slow the process of China, and it gives European leaders a distraction for their people from their own suffering. But you know, that stuff never lasts very long. And the terrible anxiety in Europe and here among people who know, and there are those people, is that time is running out. They, they don't know how much longer their people will tolerate governments that are busy sending billions into who knows what in Ukraine, as opposed to solving their urgent economic problems. This is, you know, when the hoopla about joining NATO, when all of that, because there is, I mean, NATO is not a real thing anyway, uh, when that passes, when the hype around Ukraine is over, what are they going to be left with? Less money than they had before. A totally ruined Ukraine. I mean, look what's happening on the ground in Ukraine is awful. And the, the, the malarkey, the talk about disconnect again, the nonsense talked about in the West as to what this is costing Russia. I mean, it's downright funny. It is so completely wrong and wrong-headed that you, it's no longer, I, mean, I can refute it if you want, but the more interesting question is, Americans are smart people. Americans need to know what's going on. What are they doing? You know, why, I, I give you an example. Yesterday, with great fanfare, Secretary of State Blinken made a speech. We are banning the import of Russian Gold, he said. Okay, banning Russian gold. If you know anything about economics, that is so silly, you kind of, it takes your breath away. You know why? Because gold can be melted. <laughs> you don't know where it's from. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is silly. You can't do that. Anyway, American press. I remember the first time I saw it, it's a Yahoo finance story, big pushed by Yahoo. How heavy the impact will be on Russia, and they can't uh, um, export their gold. Russia, by the way, is one of the world's great gold producers, so it's important into their economy. Then, literally two hours later, in Reuters, the British news agency, there's a story. And the story says the banning of Russian gold imports will not have any effect on Russia. It's just a symbolic move. Now, in most cases, you don't get the kind of Reuters story. But I love this example because within an hour or two, you had the American Secretary of State looking like the faker that he was in that moment. I don't know him. Maybe he's wonderful everywhere else. But in that moment, he's just talking junk. He's talking what he thinks will play well in the political life. And the fact that it's stone cold, silly, wrong doesn't worry him. Reuters doing something they don't often do. 
but they are the biggest, you know, uh, news agency in Britain and in many parts of the world. They look at this, give it to an analyst who says this is not going to make any difference at all. And most of the sanctions against Russia have been, by the way, like that. They've been all ceremony, like the G7 that you're seeing tonight on TV. It's all ceremony. It's all shirt sleeves and we're doing really nothing. And on the battlefield, Russia keeps winning. Ukraine keeps retreating. I mean, people, I, I'm telling you, they will look back on this, not only with the horror of all the people who suffered and died in the Ukraine, for which we can only feel terrible, but they'll wonder how did this country and European allies, how did they self-delude on this scale for this long? I mean, you know, Ukraine is on the border of Russia. The United States is having to ship 8,000 miles missiles so that a little country can throw, do something to defend itself against. It's crazy. Let me give you a statistic and just ask everyone watching. If you don't know what I'm about to tell you, if you didn't know, and it is crucial to understanding what's going on, ask yourself why you didn't know. Here we go. Economists use a number called the GDP, gross domestic product, to, as a rough measure of how big and strong an economy is. Because the GDP tells you the total value of goods and services produced in a year in that country. Every country has a GDP. The UN and other agencies keep track. Okay, the GDP of Russia, our great enemy. Ready? Ready? Here we go. One and a half trillion dollars. The GDP of the United States, $21 trillion. Okay? This is not a fight between equals. This is not a struggle between equals. This is a struggle between David and Goliath. And I won't upset anyone by telling you who's playing which role that the Russians would go to war with the risk of the United States means either they're crazy and there's not one shred of evidence to suggest it, or they know exactly what they're doing. They know they can do it. They know how far they can go. The United States doesn't know what it can do. So it is hysterically, you know, gesturing. It can't, it can't, you know, we lost the war in Vietnam. We lost the war in Iraq. We lost the war in Afghanistan. And we're going to lose this one too. And, yeah. it's, and it keeps being unthinkable for most Americans to get their heads around this. And all I can say is you should have taken a page from the British. Their empire has been going down for a century. You might learn from that, but you better make some accommodations. The British tried to squash the Americans in the Revolutionary War, in the end of the 18th century, and then again in the War of 1812. When they defeated, were defeated twice, they gave up. The United States doesn't seem to be able to learn. Yeah, yeah, you know, and this is all very interesting given that the world capitalist economy is heading toward recession along with the problems with as you said, these ceremonious sanctions, but the U.S. does expect Europe to do what it says. And so that leads to a very, very, I think, major problem, especially for Europe, but it's going to ripple across the world in the United States in particular, the, the fact that you would have an energy crisis due to sanctions and then an economic crisis at the same time. It's, 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 and you also have Russia, which is doing what it needs to do to maintain some semblance of stability, given that it is the subject of all of these economic attacks. It is, as you said, this picture of like this flailing, it's like a, the U.S. is a flailing fish out of water and yeah. it's trying to create a, per yeah, it's trying to create a permanent war situation in a particular moment where no such thing can lead to anything good. But I want to just get your final reactions. Anything you don't want to finish up here as we approach uh, the hour. 
yeah, a couple of things that just flesh out the other image. The Russians either knew or have been beyond words lucky. Just to be clear to everybody, the increase in the price of oil and gas, which are major exports of Russia, mean, try to get your head around this, that Russia has earned more in export revenue from selling oil and gas at a higher price. They've earned more there than the war in Iraq has cost them. Therefore, it's a free war. Countries very rarely have that. Nothing is happening in the United States to make the war in, in Ukraine cheaper or free or anything like that. That's one thing. Number two, Russia can export limitless amounts of oil and gas to the rest of the world, not just China and India, who are taking huge quantities of it, but the whole rest of the world. Why? Because after Europe and Japan uh, and the United States, most of the rest of the world doesn't care about the Ukraine war or sides with Russia or refuses to side with either side, but continues to trade with Russia and China. And all you're going to be seeing, and you see it already, are more and more unifying cooperation agreements among the Indians, the Chinese, and all of the others as an alternative to the dominance of the world of the United States and Europe, which means that the latter is going to go further down. And you're seeing a flailing fish out of water, but that fish is actually making its own pond murkier and its own future more difficult. And you have to wonder whether the internal craziness of this country, what the Supreme Court is doing and all, isn't also linked in to a society that, that is desperately got, trying to find something, you know, to, to, to bring it back. No wonder Mr. Trump wants to make America great again. I mean, because look where it's going.